0: So I, I just thought to myself, as I'm reading, well, can I just figure out what, what did Jesus say that was so smart? That's really all, all I want to know. But as I'm reading <laughs> through there, I realized these are these are people who want me to believe that these things happened in a certain event order, a certain sequence, at a certain time in history, at a certain place on the planet. These are, are alleged eyewitness accounts. And so I just decided to test them the way you would test any eyewitness account. Welcome to the Focus on the Family broadcast,
1: helping families thrive. That's Jim Wallace describing how his background in law enforcement helped him uncover some amazing truths about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the story of his investigation will inspire and challenge your faith. We'll hear more today from Detective Wallace on this episode of Focus on the Family with your host, Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Hey, John. uh, We heard an amazing conversation
2: last time that I recorded with Jim Wallace, and he has some fascinating perspectives about why our beliefs in Jesus and the Bible really matter today. As he described last time, Jim was uh, an atheist who simply thought Christianity was just another kind of mythology. Or worse, he was convinced it was an elaborate hoax that could easily be debunked by a careful examination of the facts. And I love when people set out to disprove the Gospels, Mm. it's exciting. However, uh, Jim's convictions were put to the test when he realized there might be more credibility to the Gospels than he imagined. So he began a comprehensive investigation using all of his skills as a police detective to discover the truth. Uh, If you missed our conversation from last time, I want to urge you to review the previous video episode or get the audio download from our website. Or you can get the broadcast app so you can listen when you're able to. Uh, This is a great message that you
1: don't want to miss. As we mentioned last time, Jim Wallace has written a book about his research and his personal faith journey. The title is Cold Case Christianity, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. We have that here. Request your copy when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, or check the program notes for all the details. And now, Jim, here's part two of your conversation with Jay Warner Wallace on today's episode of Focus on the Family.
2: Jim,
0: welcome back to Focus. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you for day two. <laughs> this fun. is awesome. There's a lot of energy going on in this Yeah, room. that's good, it's right? Just, well, know, this, we should be passionate about this, right? This is the most important stuff to talk about. Absolutely.
2: And let me ask you this, because one thing that I've seen for people particularly who don't want to believe in God, spend a lot of time talking about God. Yeah. In a negative context, right. right? So if they don't believe in God, they're the atheists, they do a lot of rebuttal to Christians about how silly we are. Yeah, they, My point being is they engage the topic more than their predisposition would you know, kind of
0: implicate. you, yeah. you, you see what I'm saying. Well, and so
2: me as the if atheist, I'm an atheist, why would I even talk about? Okay, God? so here's what I here I am said. talking here's, about God.
0: Yes, and I it, sometimes it's put out this way. Uh, uh, you know, that atheist is saying that God doesn't exist and I hate him. <laughs> right. which seems okay, like a contradiction. What... But the reality of it is, is that I was one of those guys and I would have said, no, it's not that I think that God doesn't exist and I hate. That would be stupid. He doesn't exist. What's there to hate? No, it's that God doesn't exist and I hate the fact that you think he does and have created a version of God. Which has created so much pro- problem in the world. It has created so many troubles in the world. That was my view. So it's that, and we talk about it a lot because we think it's problem solving. Like we can solve the world's problems, the nation's problems by simply eliminating the Christian worldview because it's the Christian worldview, if you think about it, that stands between, there's a lot of things. Well, I Now we're
2: talking because there's about half the country that believes that. That's
0: right. And so, because of that, they're they're actively pursuing not because they think this is you know I I I, there's no God and I hate him, but because they think there is no God. And what you've done by creating this fiction is stopping us from progress, is stopping us from becoming the kinds of people that they think we need to become. The reality of it, though, is that the Bible does describe the world the way it really is, not just the way it is historically. Not you know I think that describes the history of the first century about Jesus accurately, but it also describes human nature accurately. Look things don't change. I I learned early on that the only three motives for murder are are sex, money, and power, the pursuit of power. Well, I, I wish I would have read scripture because that's in 1 John 2. I just didn't know 1 John 2. So I had to find it the dumb way by just by doing a bunch of cases. But it turns out that our human nature is described by a book that actually captures reality the way it really is.
2: When you were that atheist, let me ask you this, you were convinced that the resurrection of Jesus had to be some kind of hoax or conspiracy and that the disciples cooked it up. That's pretty common when yes. you talk to people yes. that don't believe in Jesus. That'll be the first thing. I talked to a guy from uh, Princeton Divinity School that believes this. Right. And he's a smart guy.
0: Yeah. But think of that. He went to Princeton mm-hmm. Divinity and unlearned his faith. Well, okay. So we always have knowledge and wisdom are two different things, right? right. We, so we, I can get a lot of knowledge going into this school, but I may not be wise. And what made me wise about the whole conspiracy theory issues is, is working a bunch of conspiracies. Here's what I've discovered. To have a successful conspiracy, and I think we're so... We love conspiracy theories. I mean, we are... I mean, a lot of Christians, we it feeds are... feeds an appetite. Yes, it feeds an appetite we all have. They make great movies, make great novels. We love to talk about them as though they're true. But here's the hard truth, is that you need a certain number of things in place In order to have a successful conspiracy and here they are pretty simple you need the least number of co-conspirators it's easier for two people to do something tell a lie keep a secret than it is for 22 it just is you also need to hold it for the shortest amount of time possible it's easier to hold a lie for a day than it is for a year. So the, a great conspiracy is when two people committed a crime and then one immediately kills the other. Well, now we've kind of captured it, right? Now the first only, day. Yes, the first day. So so we make, we kept the time span short and we only have one remaining uh, perpetrator. But those are the first two things. The third thing is that you, you really want you know um, to have good communication, excellent communication. What's the first thing we're going to do when we get five people who committed a crime? We're going to separate them and ask them deep questions, because they cannot talk to each other now to line up their stories. And I'm going to go way beyond the initial story into the weeds to catch the lie, to spot the lie. Mm. You also want really super strong family or relational connections, right? And that's going to be really important. So these are the kinds of things we're looking for uh, when we see a successful conspiracy. Here's the problem with the gospel authors, is there's way too many of them. It's not just the 12, right? There's 120 in the upper room in Acts 1. Remember, they picked Matthias to replace Judas, right? He was also an eyewitness who had seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. They picked from a group of 120. But Paul says there were 500 who saw the living, risen Christ on the same day. So how large is... It's just... If you just told me that, oh, yeah, I believe in a conspiracy from last year involving 500 people... That all lined up. Yeah, I'm going to be suspicious already. It's too many people. If it takes an entire sector of the federal government two decades to hold a conspiracy, I'm sorry, someone's going to break. Let me ask you about that, because that's true.
2: I understand that. Uh, the eyewitnesses would be different from those that believe the accounts of yes, the eyewitnesses. Yes, that's right. And I think the irony of that is those that hear the account later would be the first to say, okay, I, you know, I just heard this was what happened, right. so I, I don't know that I believe it. But for those eyewitnesses, the yes. martyrs in yes. the case of yes. Christ— these people that are being boiled in oil, being right. crucified, Corted, crucified upside you know, down, all the traditions yeah. mm-hmm. of the church with mm-hmm. Peter and all yeah. the disciples, plus, plus, plus others,
0: those eyewitnesses would have been the ones to say, no, no, okay, it's not true. Yes. None of them did. Yeah. So if I said to you, and you said this too, we would be willing to die for what we believe about Jesus. It would have zero evidential value because there's lots of folks who are willing to die for what they don't know is a lie. Right, But these are the folks who would know if it was a lie. That we cooked so, it all up. So their uh, willingness to die has high evidential value. But the very next generation would have no evidential value. So I think you're right. So, and, and, I, and I think if you look at, one of the claims I do see, though, Jim, I see that people will say, well, yeah, but we have very mixed traditions about the deaths. How can we even be sure that they died a martyr's death? Well, here's what I would say. We have all kinds of false claims made about Christians in the first three centuries, yet we have no counterclaims to how the eyewitnesses died, except for their martyrdom accounts. That's hmm. interesting to me, because it's not as though we're weighing claims. We have some claims that say they lived to a ripe old age, and some claims that say they died as martyrs. No, all we have are claims that say they died as martyrs. Interesting. So for me, that's a powerful... Um, Consistency. And, yeah, it is consistent. And we, and by the way, the, the claims related to Peter's death and Paul's death are extremely well-attested. So even if you say, well, I don't trust what I know about Andrew, though. Okay, but you've got... These folks were willing to die for what they believe was true, as the eyewitnesses.
2: Right. It's so true. Let's move to another common objection to reliability, and that's of the New Testament. Um, So-called witness testimony was added centuries later. So, you know, somebody had the core story, the fable. Yes. And then others built on it to make it a more secure fable. Speak yep. to that idea that somehow this was just uh, you know, a fairy tale that was built on over two or three or yes. four centuries. Yes, and there are
0: really well-known um, skeptics who have written books on how Jesus became God and basically argued that there's a Jesus of Nazareth But that's factual. Yes, he's a preaching rabbi in the first century. And even the skeptics, many of these skeptics will say that's very well attested historically. They have no doubt that there was a Jesus of Nazareth. What they doubt, though, is that that was accurately captured. What we have today is the first capture of that Jesus. In other words, there might be some early document recording the life of Jesus, but all of the miracle claims, those things, the, the virgin birth, the resurrection, these are things that were added to the story over time until the Jesus of history became the Christ of Christianity. And the argument basically is that, that, that you, you, you know you've got 300 years, let's say, between the, the life and ministry of Jesus and, say, the Council of Laodicea, where they decide which of these canonical books are we going to assemble into the New Testament canon. That's a long time. Look, there's a murder uh, show on Netflix, I think it's called The Making of a Murderer. And, and one of the claims is that some of the evidence was pulled out of property well after the crime by evil detectives and law enforcement officers who then used it and twisted it, tainted it, put the blood someplace where it shouldn't be. So that after the fact that the, the evidence was altered by a detective, and then when we go to trial 10 years later, we don't know it's been altered by the detective and we've got bad evidence in the trial. So the same kind of claim is made. This was not part of the original case, but a, detec- a detective later tampered with it, and now it's in the case. So what we do to prevent that from happening in criminal trials is we simply ask a question. Was there somebody there on the day of the, of the actual investigation who saw that piece of evidence in the crime scene? Maybe even took a Polaroid, because back in the day, we would take Polaroids. Right. And my dad would be the next guy up, the investigator, would talk to that officer and say, what did you find? Oh, I found this. And here, he would receive the evidence sometimes or receive the Polaroid, take his own Polaroid. He'd write his own reports and now we got two reports and then he would bring it to the crime lab they take their own uh, photographs right there. now we got three reports and then I'd come pick it up years later write my report so now I've got picture after picture after picture And report after report after report connecting the past to the present. And each one of us who's writing a report or taking a picture, we're like a link in a chain Uh that connects the past to the present. And this is why this is called the chain of custody. So in every significant piece of evidence in a criminal trial, they're going to say, what's the chain of custody? Like, where did it go? Is there any period of time in which we can't account for it? Right where it was you're breaking the chain because that's where it got tampered right there. So how do you apply that to the New Testament? Okay, so we ask the question: We got get authors who write something are eyewitnesses. Let's say like John. We he appears to be he whoever wrote John says they saw this stuff. Okay, great. Okay, you he wrote something, but how do I know if his Polaroid is the same thing I have today in my Bible? Well, I asked the question: Who's his next officer in the chain of custody? Well, his students were Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. So those three students actually wrote letters to local congregations. And we have, they're not in your scripture, but they have these ancient texts. Here's what I'm looking for. Is the Jesus described by Polycarp and Papias and Ignatius less supernatural than the one I have today in John's gospel? Because then it would tell me that, hey, something changed. Got a discrepancy. Right, who's the next link in the chain? Well, Ignatius and Papias, or Polycarp rather, had a student named Irenaeus. but we have a bunch of his documents. What does Jesus sound like in his documents? He had a student named Hippolytus. And you can do this for the uh, um, eyewitnesses over and over and over again. Peter, you can trace all the way through Tatian in history. Paul, you can trace through the North African church all the way to Eusebius. These are chains of custody. And so you can examine every link in the chain, and you can even compare the chains to each other. Because hmm. these happen in three different regions. Remember, one's happening in Asia Minor with John. One's happening in Rome with Paul. One's happening in North Africa with Peter. They're separated in the kingdom. So how do we, I mean, if they actually match, if the story about Jesus is every bit as supernatural from the very beginning in all three chains, you can have confidence that the story hasn't changed. So I actually have great confidence. Now, you can argue that, hey, I don't, I don't believe it. Okay, fine. But you can't argue, I don't believe it because the story was changed. Because right. we can actually trace the chain of custody, Because you can see, and the does change. Right, the things yeah. that you're most concerned about as an atheist: did he rise from the grave? Was he born of a virgin? Did he work those miracles? You're going to be stuck with that in the very earliest accounts of Jesus. You see, that's amazing. You, you also speak about the Gospel of Mark and how
2: it reads as a crime broadcast. What yes. does that mean to the novice here?
0: Well, okay, so if you know, like I said before, we do criminal trials, and the jury I always tell juries that we, I, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. But I can't tell you everything that could be known, because I can't answer every question. Because I'm, we're all, we try not to edit, right? We we want to give you everything we learned, evidentially. Yeah. But when you're talking to a witness, the witness always does real life, real time editing. Sure, just happens. Now, why is it then that Mark's gospel is so much briefer than, say, Matthew or Luke? Well, it's because he's like the crime broadcast. I honestly think that if you look at this New Testament letters, you'll see that each author has a sense that Jesus is going to come back in their lifetime. Like the return of Jesus is imminent. Correct. So we're going to get this out as, I think it would probably 30 years, with this being communicated verbally. And I think really it's after the death of of, uh, of, uh, James, the brother of John, about 44 AD, that you see now the death of the eyewitnesses. That's when I think you start to see Scripture appear, because it's it's clear. Hey, we're not going to get out of this alive. We better write everything down because it's for not the future it, generations. It, Jesus may not come back in our lifetime, right? So here we're going to write this stuff down. Well, Mark's early broadcast. It's kind of, when you arrive at a crime scene. If you're the first officer there, your job is to put out everything you can put out. Because other people are still in the area. They might catch this guy. What do you mean by put out? Well, what I mean is you get your radio out and you say, we just had a robbery at this location. The suspect description is, and you give a very brief suspect description in a blue Toyota. It's got a a broken back, a broken rear mirror, or it's got a broken right-hand mirror, some description so that if we're out in patrolling and we go, "Oh, there's a guy that matches the description. There's the Toyota. It matches the description. We actually can do something. So Uh the first broadcast, the first crime broadcast is got information. But trust me, once he starts taking a report, that's going to be like 10 pages. His broadcast was a paragraph, right? but it was immediate. I needed it immediately because I need you to act right now because time is short. He might get away. Well, the same thing is kind of happening with Mark. I think he's the earliest uh, report, and he is the briefest report. I need you to act right now. Time is short. And everyone else who comes along then actually expands. Luke says that he is speaking to all the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And the person he quotes the most is Mark's gospel. Well, it
2: seems to me that Luke is uniquely positioned because he's commissioned to go collect all the facts and about he says the this. case. Yes. That's exactly what he yes. says. He says, so I have like...
0: carefully written this. Well, I always say this, whenever we're listening to words and, and i listening to your words, Jim, I'm always listening to the optional words, the words you didn't have to say. Well, those are adjectives and adverbs. You don't ever use, I never need to use one. And then they tell you something. And so I'm listening to how Luke writes that report. He tells us he's careful. He doesn't need to say carefully. Look, if I tell you this is my black coffee tumbler, what did I just tell you? Color and use. I just told you I have more than one tumbler. This is the black one.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, that's good. The other one
0: (laughs) is probably a different color. Okay. So see, I can learn something from the optional word. By telling you this is my black tumbler, I didn't have to say, this is my Tumblr, but I gave you more information. Well, that's what I'm looking for in Luke's first chapter. And he says that he carefully, that's because he's comparing his to Mark, which isn't as careful. Mark was another early account. He's going to quote Mark more more than any other source, but he's here to tell you, I have a lot of other stuff from the other eyewitnesses and servants of the world. He also says that he has an orderly account and the Greek word means correct chronological order. Huh. Why do I need to use that adverb or that adjective, an orderly account? Well, because it turns out Mark's account is not in the correct chronological order. Compare Mark to Luke, you'll see some things in different orders. Papias, an early bishop, says Mark's account was written at the feet of Peter, and he was accurate, if not orderly, he uses the exact same Greek word, orderly. So we knew from Papias it wasn't an orderly account. Luke is telling us this in the first chapter. But that means that as early as Luke's gospel is, and I think it is early, Mark's is even earlier because yeah. he's comparing his to Mark.
2: You know, one thing I want to come back to because we're talking about the accuracy of scripture, the Dead Sea Scrolls seem to mm-hmm. really shine a bright light on that accuracy. Yes. What did in your investigation? What did you find about the accuracy of the Dead Sea Scrolls? What were they depicting, and what did they find out? Well, what
0: we get with the Dead Sea Scrolls is a chance to see a snapshot of how well things are copied by the copyists, right? We get to see what is... We've got an earlier version of Isaiah. We can compare it to a later version, separated by hundreds of years, and see if there's much change in the transmission of the document over those centuries. But here's what I would say about that. Even before I looked at the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, look... There are some claims that I'm less careful about because they don't really matter. I mean, there are some claims that like, if I'm, if I'm like taking notes and keeping a track of what my grandfather's life story was in his nature, I'm doing it because I want to pass my grandfather's history onto my kids. And so I'm going to be very careful in how I collect that data and how I keep those letters and how, and how I talk about those things. Imagine if I'm chronicling the nature of God almighty, do you think that would be important enough to take care because this is. And you is, believe that to your core. Yes, this is yeah. scripture. Right. This is holy. This is God's word. It's treated this way. And so I would just think, well, of course it's going to be treated. That doesn't really surprise me because of the nature of the claim. How the, the transmitter viewed the document determines how well he'll transmit it. Let's turn the corner for the last few minutes here and just talk about how
2: you moved from mm-hmm. being that atheist to that first whiff of becoming a three back to that discussion. I mean, talk about your progression from four, the hardcore, angry atheist, to the three, maybe so, heart is open, I hope there's a God, but I'm not sure, to the two,
0: I'm a Christian, but I have some questions,
2: Yes, to the one, I'm sold out.
0: Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, I I read C.S. Lewis um, at some point in the first year of investigating this, and Lewis said something about, I think it was mere Christianity, but I I think this was from God on the Dock, And I remember him saying, um, roughly, that if Christianity is true, if it's not true, it's of no importance. So stop, you know, why why should we go to church anymore? It's of no importance if it's not true. If it is true, though, it's of critical importance, the most important thing you'll ever, ever, ever know. What it can't be, though, he would argue, and I think he's right, is it cannot be moderately important. It's either of no importance or of critical importance. So I knew this, right? Once I got into it, I realized, okay, if this is true. So I spent about a year just investigating the claims of the Gospels. To see if what they were saying about Jesus was true. And I simply used a lot of first century sources, a lot of the history of the early church, a lot of the history of the first century of that region to see if I could corroborate some of these claims, to see if they had changed over time, how early were the claims. And then at some point, I got to a point where I told Susie, I said, you know, I think I believe what it's telling me about Jesus. And I don't know that we really even knew what that meant yet. And she said to me, well, and I said, but I have a question and maybe you can help me with this because she's on the same journey with me. I still don't get why you would have to die on a cross though. Huh. Like, why would this have to be the plan of salvation? So I was already at a point where I was willing to accept the, the reliability of the gospels, yet I still didn't understand the gospel. Right, the core. And at that point I started to read the scriptures, not for what they said about Jesus, because I'd already done that work. And I and I trusted him for that. So I needed that to belief know belief was there. Yeah. So I had belief that. Now you had to move to the I next had to move thing. to belief in. Yeah. And that was, I started reading the scriptures to see what they said about me. Huh. And if you are, if you you'll do that, now, I would never have started that way. Because for me, I didn't believe they were telling me the truth about Jesus. So why should I care what they're telling me about me? It's all a fairy tale. But once I knew they were telling me the truth about Jesus, I started to read what they were saying about me. And if, if you have any sense of humility at all, or self-awareness, you'll realize that what Paul says in Romans, the Romans wrote, right? For all have sin fall short of the glory of God. Well, you realize it. It's true of you. Look, I don't believe in a good God. I believe in a morally perfect God. There's a difference. If there's a God powerful to create the entire universe from nothing, he can eliminate moral imperfection. That's why he's a morally perfect being. I've had good days. I've had morally good days, but I've never had a morally perfect day. (laughs) And and you're not going to stand in front of a morally perfect God by his sheer power alone. You cannot stand in front of him That's what it says that's right that makes sense right because we're like oil and water so i knew at some point that that's who i was i was that natural man for years only the spiritual man can discern these things and i had to get to a place and i think that's okay my journey in was different than others and if you're a skeptic who's listening to this and you think no i gotta think my way in well welcome well that and that hits the pride factor Yes. as the
2: created being, that yes. we've got to say we are sinners. I
0: yes. am the sinner. That's right. Saved by grace. Not my grace. Yes, that's right. By the Lord's grace. And here's how I look at it. Look, in the end, um, all crime is created by some subset of pride that drives us to either pr- pursue money, sex, or the pursuit of power. It's a pride issue. I want this. I want this desire. I want me, 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 me. It turns out that pride, that kind of selfish self-focus it's not just the, the motive for every murder and every crime. Everything you think is wrong with the world in our country, you could go back and say, well, it's really grounded in this problem, a pride problem. Well, there's the opposite of pride is another word that no one else talk about. It's humility, right? So it turns out that every problem you think you see, the solution is humility. It, this is why the gospel, I always say, its gospel is the cure for every kind of stupid you can think about. Huh. If it's government, stupid, politics, stupid, ideology is stupid, whatever stupid you think is out there, it turns out the gospel is the cure. You know why? Because it begins with an act of humility. It begins with a bent knee. And when we are willing to do that for the gospel... It, it changes everything. So, so you have true. to get to a place where you're willing to bend your knee.
2: Jim, I mean, we're right down to it. You've done a fantastic job describing the journey that God's had, that God has had you on. I mean, right from, he had his hand on you when you were an atheist. That's right. I mean, that's a point too. Yeah. I mean, this idea that God knows you before you know him. That's right. And he's drawing you and drawing you. And that's everyone. I think that's everyone because he loves his creation. He loves us. Yep. We're made in his image and even for the person that would put his fist up to god because they lost a wife they lost a child whatever tragedy they had in their family that's usually the first response god why would you do this to me that's right and i think at the end here the right question is for that person particularly who has that bitterness what do you say in everything that you've discovered I think it would be don't lean into your pride. Lean into God's humility.
0: I I always say that I'm not a Christian because it works for me, because it doesn't work for me. Honestly, if you're like, especially if you're a young person right now, this is the thing that's not going to make you popular. You're not going to be the most popular kid in your school if you're a Christian, probably. And I wasn't trying to solve a problem. I didn't have a, a train wreck marriage. I didn't have any of the things that most times will drive you to your knees. I didn't have any of that. I had a great life. So I'm a Christian because it's true. And even though it doesn't always work for me from a convenience sake, it is true. I'd much rather be in an inconvenient truth than an inconvenient lie. It is evidentially true. Hmm. So you can pretend like it's not and live your whole life, like. but you're going to be living in a lie. And how comfortable is anyone living in a lie? We've created this worldview for ourselves. We want to deny that God exists. Okay. But it is true. Just know that you're living in this fabrication you've created. I don't think many of us feel comfortable doing that. And they see us as the Christians who are living in the lie. Well, okay, that's why I wanted to look at the evidence. Because once I knew it was true evidentially, I realized there wasn't a lot of choice. There are days when it's, it's hard. It's harder If you ask Susie, the 18 years before we became, became Christians was a lot easier than the 26 since we've been Christians. <laughs> that's interesting. It's a lot easier. Why? Because it's easy to throw the dart against the wall, just go draw the bullseye around wherever the dart lands. Now we're not doing that. Now there's a bullseye before we start. I can a never standard. I can never hit it. Yeah. And that's a, a much diff more that's difficult, good. but it's a life worth living. That's well said. The
2: book title could be The Man That Doesn't Have a Crutch. Yeah, exactly. Right? But it's called Cold Case Christianity and what a great resource. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. You will be back. I'm I appreciate gonna have you, you. back and I we'll have some you, fun talking about this again. Looking forward to it.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this two-part conversation with J. Warner Wallace about the powerful truths of the gospel message and how each of us can become more effective witnesses for Christ. If today's program has raised any questions about your own relationship with God and what it means to be a Christian, let me urge you to contact us for a free booklet or download that we have called Coming Home. It offers a simple overview of why Jesus came to die and sacrifice himself for mankind and how a personal relationship with Him will transform your life forever. We can also send you a copy of Jay Warner's book called Cold Case Christianity when you make a gift of any amount to focus on the family. Just call 800-the letter A in the word family, or stop by the program notes for all the details. And let me turn
2: to you, the viewer, and ask you to support the ministry. Monthly support is a fantastic way to help us because we are responding to literally hundreds of thousands of people each and every year that are looking for help in their marriage, their parenting, maybe even building their faith in Christ like this program today. So consider partnering with us on a monthly basis. And if you can't do that, we get it. A one-time gift of any amount will help as
1: well. The bottom line is we need you to do ministry. Reach out and uh, donate as you can when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family. Or check the program notes uh, to make a contribution and request Jay Warner's book as well. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for watching Focus on the Family today. I'm John Fuller inviting you back next time as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ.